At this time, the children are dismissed for preschool and children's church. And again, we'll dismiss children through fifth grade this Sunday. As the children exit, I invite you to find Proverbs chapter 5 in your Bible. Our passage today is Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 23. I'll be reading and preaching from the Bible I always do. It's the English Standard Version. I was speaking with someone this week who reminded me that the Bibles in the pews are the NIV, New International Version, uh, which is also a good translation. So I recognize that they are a little different. That's one reason why we project uh, what I read and preach from up here. But it is good to view a couple of different translations. I think it gives you a a more well-rounded approach to the passage, but I recognize that can be difficult to follow along as I read a lengthy passage when yours is a different translation. So feel free to just listen as I read it or follow along up there if that's more helpful. Proverbs chapter 5, 15 through 23, as I mentioned earlier, and and the reason that we dismiss the children through fifth grade, it is a, a mature passage. Um, it's aimed at a young married man, basically, is the approach of the passage. And it uses language that's a little bit more graphic than you would typically use in a sermon. It's not anything crude or anything uh, outrageous. Um, it, it's, it's meant to be taken in the best sense, the purest sense, the most lovely sense. And so we're going to approach the passage in a real straightforward way as God's word. And I really trust that, that the Lord has good things in store for us as we do. So um, what I'd like to do is, is just read through the passage straight through, and then we'll, we'll uh, receive it in a more detailed way together. So let's just begin by reading it. Proverbs five, fifteen through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical. Proverbs is, what a gift that has been to us. Lord, I pray now that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would enable us to receive your word fully, not just mentally and intellectually understanding it, but submissively and reverently allowing our hearts and our lives to be conformed to it. Please work among us now. Let your word just have its full powerful effect in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So as I mentioned before we read it, the Proverbs, the tone and the general disposition of it is that of a wise father teaching his young man son. 
You can almost get the sense of a, a father and a, an adult son taking a stroll through the woods together and the father just sort of dispensing wisdom, advice about how life ought to work. Only in this case, it's God the Father. This is divine advice. But it's so practical. It's so straightforward and helpful. So as we read it and as, as we work through Proverbs at the beginning of each year and you hear it say, my son, my son, my son, over and over again, it, it is indeed sort of aimed at young men in a way. And one of the most powerful temptations away from God's wisdom is sexual sin for young men. And I think that's why in the first seven chapters, four large sections are given to the topic of marriage, adultery, sexual purity, sexual sin. These topics receive the most sustained attention in the book of Proverbs of any topic apart from wisdom itself. So it's fitting that we take a moment and receive this passage this morning. And I'll use the language of the passage, so it may at times seem as if I'm just preaching to young men. But I think you know that it's broader in application. It's broader. This is a scripture for all of us, regardless of your gender or your age or your marital status. This is a scripture for all of us. It'll help us understand the nature of marriage in a culture that is very, very much confused about it. It'll help us understand the nature of sexual sin in a culture that's just completely untethered in regard to sexuality. And most importantly, it'll help us to fear the Lord as we think about all these things, which is the beginning of wisdom. So this is going to be rich. This is going to be good for all of us, regardless of who you are and what your situation in life is. Now, God already taught us before this passage of some of the dangers of adultery, some of the dangers of sexual sin. He mentioned just before this passage that it leads to a loss of strength and success. It leads to um, painful physical consequences. And it leads to utter and public ruin. Sexual sin is not anything to play with. It is serious and has serious consequences. But this passage takes a a slightly different angle and looks at it from a slightly different point of view. Instead of negative warnings against adultery, what we have in this passage is uh, positive exhortation toward fidelity. Now, pick that word fidelity on purpose. It's not a word we use often, but in this sense, it means faithfulness to a spouse, particularly in physical intimacy, faithfulness to our spouse. It's not just good, it's wise. So let's begin where the passage begins with verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Sexual desire here is pictured like thirst. And sexual temptation is the temptation to satisfy your thirst in forbidden waters. The solution given in verse 15 is not to abstain from water altogether, but to drink from your own well the source of water that God has given to you. And it's really poetic. First, he likens, as we'll see as we go through the passage, he likens the young man's wife to a cistern. This was a, a man-made receptacle for catching water runoff. But these would sometimes become stagnant because they would just hold reserved water. Then he heightens the poetry, the image a little bit, to that of a well. A well is 
a containment source where you can gain access to fresh flowing water from underground streams. The idea is that you've been given a water source and it's not just some stagnant pool, it's a source of fresh flowing water. But the emphasis is not just that the young man's wife is a source of water, and it's not just that the young man's wife is even the source of water, it's that the young man's wife is his own source of water. And that's really important to get the understanding of this passage. She is your God-given source of physical intimacy and physical satisfaction. Now, Paul carries this same idea forward in the New Testament. And I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Incidentally, this is our first passage when we get back to 1 Corinthians in the summer. We're working through Proverbs at the beginning of each year, 1 Corinthians each summer. And when we return, this will be our first passage. So in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 2, he says, Because of the, te- of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his own wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the idea is here, young man, in your sexual temptation, the most basic means God has given you is your spouse, your own wife, your own well. Now, already at this first verse, there's two applications that we can take from this text. The first one is what I just said. The most basic way to fight sexual sin in ourselves is not to abstain from sex, but to pursue marital intimacy. That's the most basic way in how God has designed humanity. Not resistance, but the positive pursuit of a superior pleasure. And that's the case with any temptation. Your temptation may not have anything to do with sex. But in any temptation, you're going to be way more successful if you don't just try to resist it, but instead try to pursue a superior pleasure. You know, I think about food. I know for myself personally, I am only successful in eating a healthy diet when I am pursuing a superior pleasure to that bowl of ice cream or that pizza. If I'm only just trying to resist the bowl of ice cream, just don't eat it, Matt, just don't eat it. I can't do it. But if I see beyond that bowl of ice cream to the superior pleasure of feeling good and having the energy I need to play with my children and having the clarity of mind I need to do my work well, and I begin to pursue that superior pleasure, then I gain power over the bowl of ice cream. And that's the way it is with sexual temptation. Just trying to resist it rarely will work. But the pursuit of a superior pleasure, there's power there. So if you're married, that superior pleasure is intimacy with your spouse. That's the straightforward meaning of our text. But not everybody is married. The Bible talks a good bit about singleness. In fact, in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right before what I read, Paul said, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then right after, he says, after his advice about husbands and wives 
being there for this purpose, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself. He was single. Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Some people are given a a spiritual gift of singleness. Paul was this way. Jesus was single. So many godly Christians will not have a husband, will not have a wife. They'll be single. And Paul says this in many ways is superior because then you're able to give 100% focus to just obeying the Lord. And you're nimble and you can move. If he says, go be a missionary to Africa, you go. And you don't have a family to figure out logistics. There's a lot of freedom there. And it's good. Some are single because they're still seeking the Lord's will about that. And perhaps he does have for them marriage in the future. And it's a temporary singleness. But even for folks in this situation, resistance against sexual temptation often doesn't work. It's pursuing the superior pleasures of pleasing the Lord in service to him, seeking the Lord's will regarding your marital future, preparing yourself praying about his will about these things, preparing your character to be the sort of man or woman you'll need to be to be a godly husband or a godly wife, working on just the financial logistical aspects of your life so you're prepared should he bring a godly spouse into your life, broadening the circle of your fellowship so that you'll have greater opportunity to meet more godly young men, young women that you might. God may lead you to marry. So the point is, Practicing abstinence and abstinence only is only a little bit helpful. Better for us to teach our children and our young men and women as they grow up, not just abstinence, but pursuing the superior pleasure of pleasing the Lord in regard to these things. The second application we can take from this, the most basic way to fight sexual sin in our culture is not just to rail against it and complain about it, but to rally around the gift of marriage. Because marriage is really, really good, and it's a pure source of what people are craving and thirsting for out there. You know, if you're like us, and you've mainly just watched old movies and shows on Netflix for like the last 10 or 15, or however many, I don't know, five years maybe, and then you suddenly go back to network television, it is jarring. It is shocking the level of sexual perversity that is put forward as normal and acceptable. And so we as Christians, well, we just, ah, the world's so disgusting and we complain and we rail against it. They shouldn't be like that. Well, better than to just complain about that, rally around the gift of marriage. Speak well of it in love and truth in the community and nurture our own marriages so that when people are on all fours lapping up the contaminated puddles of satisfaction sexually that the world is offering them, they can look over and see Christians satisfied with godly, loving, intimate marriages. Better for us to be salt and light in this culture than to just complain about it. Now, he moves forward from verse 15 into verse 16 and begins his motivation, his motivating argument. Let's read verse 16 together. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Now, the poetry here further develops, not just a cistern, not just a well, springs and streams of water. 
The wife is not a stagnant pool just for when you're desperately thirsty, and the wife is not even just a well that contains some fresh water. She is pictured here as streams and springs, active, abundant source of fresh flowing water. The motivation here, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, what he seems to be getting at, as I've studied and I've looked at other translations and other commentaries and prayed through this, what he seems to be getting at is, if you forsake your wife for some other source of sexual satisfaction, you will very likely lose your wife. You'll lose her. You'll lose the source of abundant, flowing, fresh water that God gave you. Other people will take it. Some other man. Affection, attraction, attention can leak out of a marriage when physical intimacy is not preserved. One spouse's sexual sin automatically makes the other spouse more vulnerable to their own sexual sin. And often, adulterers do not think about that. They don't think about the fact that they're jeopardizing losing their spouse, their wife, or their husband until it's too late. Therefore, the wise father here offers three exhortations in verses 17 through 19. We'll look at these in turn briefly. Think of these three exhortations as three walls we can build, walls of protection around our intimacy and marriage. I'll read the three verses first, and then we'll go back through. Starting at verse 17. Let them, the springs, the streams that, that are this young man's wife, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. We'll look at these three under the headings of exclusivity, enjoyment, and indulgence. These are the three protective walls the wise father recommends to the young man. Exclusivity, enjoyment, and indulgence. Exclusivity in verse 17. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Recall this wonderful fact. Your wife is your wife. Your husband is your husband. You know, I, I know men who are more aggressive about making sure nobody sits in their favorite chair in the living room than they are about making sure that nobody else gets into a circle of intimacy there with his spouse. I know men that are more protective of their hobbies, their cars, their finances, their dog, than their own wives. And they don't know what they have. And they forget the fact that this is yours. God gave you this precious gift. It's yours. They take it for granted. You are the only one who gets to see her in that way. You are the only one that gets to be near to her in that way. And that is a precious gift. That is sacred and profound. The second wall, enjoyment, verses 18 and the very beginning of verse 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. 
rejoice in her. Such a simple act. Instead of dwelling on her imperfections, dwell on all the blessings God has brought into your life through her. Let the Lord renew your vision of her. She's the same lovely deer and graceful doe that she was when you married her. When you see her, she should, in your eyes, still have the beautiful wedding dress on, like she did when she first walked down the aisle. It's Valentine's Day this month. A good practice, men, might be to spend a day, a week, meditating on this, thinking about this, making a, a list, not even just mentally, writing a list of all the ways that God has blessed you through your wife. The third wall, have exclusivity, enjoyment. And the third wall is indulgence. The rest of verse 19. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. You know, there's many pleasures in life that are ruined by indulgence. There are many pleasures that hinge on moderation. You think about eating, think about spending, think about entertainment. You know, if, if, if you eat dessert at all times, what will you get? Fat and unhealthy and death. Diabetes, heart disease, obesity. If you splurge financially, always, what will you get? Financial ruin, debt, foreclosure. A great deal of stress. Marital intimacy is different. Moderation is no virtue in regard to marital intimacy. It is a pleasure in which indulgence is encouraged by God himself. He even uses the hyperbole of drunkenness, intoxication, be intoxicated always in her love. With these three walls built and in place, exclusivity, enjoyment, indulgence, there's no reason to turn to sexual sin. There's no reason to turn to adultery. And that's the thought he expresses in verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why would you? Why should you? You know, we don't deal with wells and cisterns very often. Maybe a Another way to think about this is, imagine that you're just so thirsty. You're so thirsty. You've been sitting in church, listening to the sermon, go on and on. You ate a bunch of sugary sweets in there, and you forgot to get anything to drink, and you're sitting there, you're so thirsty. You can feel it. Even as I'm talking about thirst, you're feeling thirsty. And you're like, man, but now if I get up and go to the water fountain, I'm going to look like an idiot because everybody's going to know why. So i got to sit here, and i got to wait. In a minute, I'm going to get a little cup of communion juice, And it's that big, and that's just going to make me more thirsty. And so after this, you go to the restaurant, and you sit down, and you get the owner sees He can tell by the look on your face, you are thirsty. And so he brings you an ice-cold cup of whatever your favorite drink is. It's sweet tea, or it's Coke, or it's water, or whatever. And he puts it in front of you. It's fresh out of the fountain. And he says, that's free refills. I can tell you're thirsty. Free refills. Now, how insane would it be? For you to look at that cup and be like, ah, nah, and get up and go to your neighbor's table and get their cup with their watered-down, backwashed, 
crumbs from their meal floating in a cup and drain that to try to satisfy your thirst. Why would you do that? There's chapstick marks on the lip of the cup. Why would you do that? You've got this source, this endless source of fresh, flowing satisfaction here. Why? If what's stated in verse 20 ever becomes tempting to you as a married person, as a married man, to be intoxicated with a forbidden woman, whether that be physical, outright, capital A adultery, whether that just be breaking the boundaries of intimacy with another who's not your wife emotionally or in any other regard, or whether that be virtually through pornography or online relationships with people, if you're ever tempted toward that, it probably means that one of those three walls has started to crumble and that the intimacy of your marriage is at risk. It's time to ask, are we maintaining our exclusive relationship? Are we patching up any leaks in our intimacy? Are we guarding against inappropriate intimacy with other people? Are we beholding each other as our own? It's time to ask, are we enjoying each other? Are we rejoicing in each other? Or are we just business partners, just hurtling through life, taking care of the chores, taking care of the kids, taking care of the bills? Are we enjoying each other, rejoicing in each other? Looking at each other with wedding day affection? Are we satisfying each other? Are we physically intimate with each other in a way that satisfies us both? Now, we'll end this sermon the way he ends this passage. He ends with two deeper reasons for marital fidelity, for marital faithfulness. Let's look at verses, verses 21 through 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So here are two broader reasons to take marital fidelity, marital faithfulness seriously. And these go for any kind of sin that we may fall into, but here it's applied to sexual sin in particular. The first is sexual sin is never done in private. There's no such thing as privacy. There's no such thing. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. He doesn't just see our ways, he ponders our paths. He's not a passive observer. He's deeply interested. He cares deeply about our marriages, about our sexual purity. He considers what we're doing. There is no flirtation out of his sight. There is no liaison that he isn't considering. There is no viewing session on your computer beyond the scope of what he knows about and cares about. The second reason to take this seriously is that sexual sin is always self-destructive. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Iniquities ensnare and hold fast 
in consequences. You know, you take, you make bad decisions in this regard, and as time goes and as your decisions pile up, your options dissolve. And soon you're in a prison of lies and secrecy and guilt and shame and regret. They don't often show that on the television shows. But our wise father is telling us. Sexual sin is not only bad, it's foolish. Now, all this is important. It's very important. All this about marriage and fidelity and adultery and sexual sin is very important. But it's not unique. Some of you have sexual sin in your past. Some of you may have it in your present. But we all have some form of sin in our past and some form of sin in our present. All sin is forsaking the fresh flowing waters for contaminated puddles. That's what God teaches us in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. The prophet writes to God's people as they're about to just be destroyed because of their sins. He relays onto them God's message. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So when we think of any of our sins for which we forsake God and turn to, we can think of them in these same terms. Turning away from the fountains of living water in order to hew out for ourselves cisterns that aren't even intact, they're broken and can't even hold water. And so we will pivot from this passage to the Lord's table. And I think it's very fitting. And as we turn to the Lord's Supper, may God reveal in our hearts the broken cisterns that hold no water that we're drinking from in our lives. It may have to do with marriage and sexual sin. It may not. It may have to do with something totally different. But may God reveal these things to us. And let's let him bring us back to himself because he is the fountain of living waters. He is the satisfaction of every thirst you have. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we'll remember that our sins were paid for by his body, which was broken for us. That our guilt and shame was washed away by his blood that was shed for us. And so though we may have throughout our lives been building a self-imposed prison of regrets and fear and shame and guilt, praise God through Jesus Christ. There is a way out. If you've tasted that grace and that forgiveness and that freedom and that cleansing, you know why this is so important and special. So let's pray together before we do this. And again, you do not have to be a member of our church to participate in communion with us, but we do ask that you be a Christian. And by Christian, we don't just mean a church person. We mean somebody who genuinely trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and who is following Jesus as their Lord, has received the Holy Spirit, has been regenerated, is alive to God, is growing in the reality that they are dead to sin, growing as a Christian. That's what we mean. Let's pray together as we prepare. Father, 
Thank you for your word. Lord, if, if anything has been uttered here that is askew from just the, the, the straight truth of it, I pray that you would just cancel it out of our memories. And, but everything that is true and genuine from your word that we've heard this morning, let it just strike us deep in our hearts and change us where we need to be changed. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. And I pray for our marriages as a church that you would protect them and preserve them and bring us together as spouses in a way that can only be explained by your grace and goodness through the gospel. And as a church, I pray that you would free us from drinking from broken cisterns of this world and bring us back to drink from from you as the fountain of life-giving water. And please be directing our hearts now, speaking to us. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.